0: Welcome to Legal Tea, the podcast where law lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week, you hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another week of the podcast. Story time. Back in 2017, I got sued by Facebook for using the word book in a trademark application for an app I created called LLBook to help law students revise for their exams. Obviously, a second year law student was no match for a big tech giant, so we ended up settling amicably. But I always wondered, what would it have been like if I would taken the case to court, if only I'd had the money to do so? Well, today we might just find out. You see, this week we're sitting down with Hugh Tate, a senior investment officer at Woodsford, an ESG access to justice litigation finance business. In the episode, we discuss what litigation finance is, the recent rise of the industry in the UK, what makes a litigation claim an attractive asset to invest in, and finally the criteria used when assessing a claim to invest in. Outside of litigation funding, we discuss Hugh's own career journey, coming from down under to the UK, from private practice to litigation funding, and all the lessons learned along the way. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Hugh. Welcome to Legal Tea. How are you doing today? Well, thanks. So before we jump in, Hugh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Great. No worries. Well, um, I'm an
1: Australian qualified lawyer. I've been qualified for about seven years now. So I spent about four and a half years working as a lawyer in Australia. I mainly did commercial litigation, but I also did a little bit of criminal law work at the start. I came to London about three years ago, and I spent just under two years working at a firm called Hausfeld. Which is an American law firm that works, uh, that has offices in the UK and Europe. And basically, they predominantly do competition, claiming competition work, but also a little bit of commercial litigation as well. And a lot of their matters um, are funded and with litigation funding. And I've spent the last about year and a half working in a, um, a, a company called Woodsford, which is an ESG focused business uh, that's primarily centered on litigation funding.
0: So what is litigation funding?
1: Look, uh, I guess the easiest way I could describe it is is just like a simple way would be when a third party who's unrelated to litigation agrees to pay um, a claimant, usually a claimant's legal fees. So that would be the solicitor fees, barrister fees, expert costs, court costs, potentially also given indemnity to pay adverse costs. And that's in return to receive its fees um, from any recovery that that claimant makes in the litigation So I know that's a bit wordy, but long story short is basically we'll provide money to a claimant. And then if they're successful in litigation, we will take a fee from that successful recovery of that, that award
0: settlement or judgment award. Interesting. So why, so kind of like any other investment, why would an investor be attracted to litigation funding as opposed to buying, you know, your run of the mill stocks or bonds?
1: So I guess there's like three ways I could look at that. One was it's, it's a high risk, high return asset class. So obviously I don't think you can find many asset classes that are as risky as litigation funding, but that means the returns have to be, you know, quite good for people to take on that risk. Um, a second reason is it's counter cyclical. So the returns that you can derive from, I guess, being in a litigation funding portfolio aren't necessarily going to be correlated with the market as much as, you know, your standard stocks on, let's say, the London Stock Exchange. And clearly, some people might want to be investing in sort of that ESG focus. So a lot of the claims we bring sort of have that ESG aspect, let's say an anti-competitive company that has been, you know, acting anti-competitively and that's caused consumers to pay more. So I guess there's three ways why an investor would want to get involved with litigation funding.
0: And what attracted you personally to litigation funding?
1: Um, look, it all stems back to when I was originally in Australia, I was working on this matter. So I hadn't really had any experience litigation funding. And then this matter came through. It was basically these farmers had bought seed from this seed company and it was contaminated with this, like, this, this weed. It doesn't sound bad when it was really bad. Like, they planted it on their fields and they just couldn't get rid of it. I guess it's like, is it Japanese knotweed or something that's over here that's really bad? It was oh, sort yeah. of like that. And, yeah, and they, like their claims were probably between about $50,000 and $200,000 Australian. So that's not enough to bring a claim against this international seed company because it would have cost a million dollars to bring a claim on its own. But, you know, putting them all together, there was like a good class action to be had. And basically my firm was acting on that class action. We needed a litigation fund to finance that that litigation. That's how I got exposure to it. And always just found it really interesting after that. And so, when I came to London, I was sort of actively looking to work in litigation funding. I ended up working, uh, I think, the next best thing, which was Housefeld, because basically most of Housefeld's actions were funded by litigation funders. And I subsequently started working at Woodsford.
0: And so, what does your day-to-day role look like now, kind of working at Woodsford? Like, it's I have to like break down sort of my job into like sort of
1: I guess three different aspects. So one is like we sort of will be always sort of considering potential claim so you'll be reading the newspaper and you'll be like oh you know that's a bit of bad corporate conduct could that be a good class action or something but a lot of the work is also law firms come into us and be like we've got a claim and then I basically need to assess that claim so I'll look at it and be like yep that, that that is a good claim and then the process from there is basically I'll need to almost advocate it through internally so I'll like my bosses were like, why do you think it's a good claim? And then if we all agreed to the claim, we take it to what we call our investment advisory panel. And this is basically ex-judges and ex-judges, ex sort of leading partners who are now retired. And they get paid on an advisory basis. So they don't really have any skin in the game other than to be brutally honest with these claims. And that's what we want. We, we, we don't want to fund like unmeritorious claims or bad claims. We want them to be as brutally honest as they can be. And so basically I'll present the claims to this, IAP, the advisory panel. And I said, my role isn't really to advocate it, like as you think in like a court case, to advocate it. It's more to like really be like, can you guys please stress test this case? Here are some issues that we've identified. What do you think of that? And then if we get the okay, basically, they'll say, yeah, no, it's a good claim. And then Woodsford's business will decide to progress the claim it's a good one. And then there's like a management role afterwards. So these claims are all very large claims they could drag on for years, sometimes five, six, seven years. And we have a management role, so we basically oversee the claims. But, like, we don't run the claims. The claims are still in the control of the claimant. Let's say if there's a class rep for a class action, the class rep, or if it's just a normal claim, the claimant. But we will basically sit back and just monitor the claim, make sure everything's going to plan. We'll provide some, like, thoughts because obviously we've got a lot of experience in litigation. But, you know, the claimant still stays in control of the claim. We just sort of monitor it from there and make sure everything's going to plan.
0: We're quite interested by the kind of origination side of the business, where you guys try kind of as a business to find kind of your own claims to fund. Could you explain a little bit more about that and what that's like?
1: So I guess at that I'd say like a lot of our claims, we've sort of like evolved as a business into mainly doing these more ESG focused litigation. And so a lot of that's like competition law work. So when companies have been anti-competitive, where they've blocked out competitors or they have market power in a market and they basically use that market power to overcharge customers. And then also securities litigation. And the way I describe securities litigation is like quite often it's like bad news will come out about a company. But yeah, that's part of the risk of investing in a company. Bad news and the share price drops. But what we're looking for is basically situations where the company knew about something bad and didn't tell the market for a period of time. And people have bought into that company during that period. And then all of a sudden the news is broken and the share price has dropped. And thereby people have lost money. And if they hadn't known about that bad information, they probably wouldn't have bought into the company at all or bought into a much lower share price. So we'll look and read the brief papers. that, like, oh, look, you know, this company, uh, you know, was involved in, um, I don't know, a scandal involving them saying that, you know, they were very, they will sourcing their clothes ethically, but really they were sourcing their clothes from sweatshops and all of a sudden the share price has dropped. And, you know, we'll look at that and be like, oh, look, that seems like they've done something pretty egregious there. Um, there may be a potential claim.
0: And so, you know, with the variety between, say, securities litigation and kind of anti-competitive behavior and kind of the ESG focus as well, it sounds like you're meddling in a lot of different areas. So would you consider yourself, you know, in what you do, a generalist or or a specialist? (laughs) That's like a really difficult question (laughs) to answer. I would
1: say... And I know this isn't going to be a good answer, so don't know what we do about I guess I'm the ultimate generalist because we do have that focus of those those sort of competition securities claims, but still, I need to we still look at the broad spectrum of claims. So lawyers will bring us these claims, and you know it could be like a claim involving you know labor law, or it could be insolvency. You know, so we need to be able to assess those claims. So you need to be basically be a really good generalist, have a really solid grasp on the law generally. But like there are some areas we're very specialized in as well, like anything to do with sort of adverse costs, those litigation funding agreements, things involving litigation fund we're very specialized in, obviously, but also securities litigation and competition claims are very specialized in. So like Woodsford, I'd say we're funding in the in the competition appeals tribunal these collective actions that have only been allowed to be brought since 2015 we're really at the vanguard there of creating this jurisprudence in that jurisdiction because a lot of the claims we're funding are sort of the primary claims being brought through that court system. So, you know, we're very specialized in that aspect.
0: And so what's been the highlight moment on the job for you so far?
1: I'd probably say taking the matters through that IAP process. So, I'll give like an example. So last year a matter came in and basically it landed on my desk. I was like, "Oh, this looks like a good claim." So the responsibility is fully on me, and I basically went and asked the lawyers about it. You know, when you do, when you're analysing this case, you have a lot of meetings with the lawyers to work through issues. And I was like, "Yeah, I think this is a really good claim." And then so I had to advocate it through like my bosses. As I said, we have to have this war room where you go in and everyone like tries to think why it's a, not a good claim. And you have to. Get it through there, but long story short, it was like sort of taking that claim and getting it through to a point where you know we've invested in it now, it's you know progressed through that, and it's an active claim. And you know, this is a really big claim, it's against one of the world's leading like sort of global conglomerates. And so, I was pretty, like, I felt that was very rewarding, and it was like it's almost like a quick reward because. When you work in litigation, you, you have these claims and, you know, they'll drag on for years and years. It takes a long time. You get little wins along the way, but that big win, you know, it takes take a long time to get to, whereas this, I felt like it was a big win. And it happened relatively quickly after about
0: six months. So you got kind of the, the quicker life cycle almost. Yeah, exactly.
1: The, the, that, that reward came quicker.
0: And on the job, kind of what skills do you think one needs in order to be able to work in this area?
1: Um, I think one you do need a, like a good grasp of the law. Generally, a good grasp of the law, like a lot of different legal principles, whereas you know equity, you know, knowing about civil procedure, stuff like that. You need a good good grasp of the law. I think you need to be pretty agile. Like my job's like very one minute you can just be spending hours really in deep thought looking at this case, being like, is you know like in that deep theory. And then all of a sudden you need to switch gears and you're managing a case and then issues come up and, you know, you're just frantically running around like a, a, trying to sort out this issue. So you need to be able to change gears very quickly. And I think you need to be quite inquisitive. Um, as I said, like we're always sort of looking for new opportunities, new ideas. You know, you need to always be, have that sort of aspect of being able to look at things and be like, oh, would that work?
0: And so what's been kind of the steepest learning curve, would you say? Um, I think coming from a, being a lawyer,
1: one would be I'd say taking on greater responsibility for myself. So when you're at a law firm, I, probably when you're a partner would be different, but where I was at a law firm, sort of that associate, senior associate level, you know, you're still working as part of a bigger machine. You sort of get told what to do and your 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 job's pretty clear. Whereas this one here, it's more like the job is what you make of it. You know, like you need to take responsibility for yourself, you need to try to like generate ideas yourself, matters will land on your desk and you really need to take ownership for them and work them through the process and no one's going to be able to do that but you. You're not going to have a partner telling you to do that or anything like that. The responsibility is on you. I think the other one is just being more commercially aware. Like I thought I was commercially aware when I was working as a lawyer, as a litigation lawyer, but I just wasn't. I really feel like I wasn't. It was really like a mind shift of going from being a lawyer to working in litigation funding. And I probably find people who go in-house would probably find that as well in a more traditional in-house role like knowing how business work and almost knowing how like law, law firms and law law firms and law fees and what they do it can sort of like bog down a business a bit
0: and so just on that last point kind of what what kind of commercial aspects because obviously as a lawyer kind of instilled with you commercial awareness, commercial awareness, but, you know, in litigation funding, what additional commercial aspects did you kind of discover which you hadn't thought about previously in private practice? I think like the value of like information was
1: one um, and also about how to distinguish your business from another business. So there's a lot of litigation funders out there, but sort of distinguishing who, who, Distinguishing those litigation funders is quite hard. So, Woodsford's taken the approach of, you know, we were a traditional litigation funder, but now we've sort of evolved into a new business where sort of like more focused on ESG aspect. Um, that was one area. So, yeah. And the second one, another commercial area, I think that would probably be the main one for me,
0: to be honest. And is there a particular, you know, reason why ESG in particular, just out of curiosity, like why, why Woodsford is, is, is centered on the kind of ESG corner of the market?
1: I think that's just the way the business sort of developed. Like there's a real focus on ESG at the moment. And the reason that's come about rightfully is because a lot of these businesses have been doing the wrong thing. And that's sort of just what has developed into that role because these businesses have been doing the wrong thing and that has given rise to these claims that could be brought against these companies. Um, a lot of these securities actions, basically, we won't at first instance be litigating against these people. We basically allow collective, these, these companies, let's say institutional asset managers, to collectively group together and sort of deal with these companies before litigation starts. Like, Look, we want to correct behaviour. We sort of want to be compensated, but not an adversarial litigation approach. So we assist that process to happen, which I think is a really good thing because a lot of what we do is about changing, changing things, these established corporate practices.
0: And so kind of going back to litigation funding generally and and where it came from, traditionally, from what I understand, at least in the UK context, there are quite strict rules around kind of litigation funding. Why? Why was that? Yeah, so there was rules against
1: what you call maintenance and jeopardy, Um, and these rules were developed hundreds of years ago. And basically it was when public institutions weren't that strong and they were worried that people could corrupt these institutions, corrupt the judiciary, you know, bribe witnesses and stuff. People could, I guess, stuff, bring spurious claims, funding them and, you know, hijack the system. Whereas nowadays, we have very strong public institutions. The judiciary is extremely strong. I think you'd be a brave person to say anyone's going to be able to corrupt this process. But the real problem we have nowadays is access to justice. It is like so expensive to litigate. It's just beyond reach of most people. If you have, and this is a lot of money for me, when you say, oh, you have a $100,000 claim, you know, that's a lot of money. But if you want to bring a claim in the British courts, um, it would cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds to bring that claim. So you, you just, it's just not economically viable, but in the cases we run, let's say you have a good one is like a competition context. You might have uh, a company might be acting any competitive. They might've been the same cartel and that's caused prices to rise. So Everyone's paid more money than they should have for a particular good. Um, and everyone's claim might be worth 500 or a thousand pounds. You're not gonna be able to litigate against one of the world's biggest companies over 500 or a thousand pounds. But if you have let's say 100,000 or 500,000 people who have suffered that conduct, bring a claim in a class action against that company that makes it m- much more economically viable. And that's where we will step in. We'll, bring, we'll, we'll fund the class representative to bring a claim on everyone's behalf. So then there will be a nice big award for everyone who can they can try to get some compensation.
0: So it's almost kind of you know a supplement but also an extension to kind of I guess the legal aid system. But more so, outside yeah. It's place, almost the penal.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to say. Almost, it's almost like privatizing it. You know, taking it off the public person, sort of making it a more privatized system. An important point, you know, as I think I've already said, you know, that whilst we fund these matters, the class rep or the claimant still maintains control of the litigation. So we we will provide the funding. We can provide advice about like how
0: we think things should be run, but you know, these people stay in control of the litigation you're just kind of making sure that everything's running accordingly, but you're not actively managing the kind of almost like a silent partner to the deal. Precisely.
1: So like what the British courts, they started unraveling this all about, uh, it's it's, it's been a process over a number of judgments over the last 50 years, but they basically say it's on public policy that this is allowable because it allows access to justice. But there's two important caveats about that. It's like, a funder can't come in and control the litigation. You can't go and give the money, and then all of a sudden, this is my claim. I'm going to run it how I want. They basically have to be quite passive, be like, here's, "Here's our funding. You run the matter. We will oversee it, but this is still your claim." And the second important point is that we are liable for adverse. More than likely, will be liable for adverse costs. So in the UK, there's cost shifting. So if you bring a claim and you're unsuccessful, you're going to have to pay a proportion of the other side's legal costs. And so if we fund a litigation, we will be liable to pay the other side's legal
0: costs. And so one thing I've kind of, you know, I've been hearing a lot through our conversation is, is class action. When you say kind of class actions are the archetypal case most suitable for litigation funding.
1: Um, no, no, I wouldn't say so. Like, you know, any claim can be funded provided, you know, there is a sufficient quantum there because... Any litigation or any credible litigation fund will basically be like, look, look, I'm not going to touch the claim unless there's a large judgment out there because the main thing is that whilst we want a good return, we also want whoever we're funding to take the lion's share of that. And if it's a small claim, it's just not going to make it economically viable for us to also fund it because we will end up probably taking up more in our fees than what the claim is going to get. And that's just one, risky for us because we might get a good return, but two, it's also an extremely bad look. So any claim that's going to be pursued just has to have a substantial amount of quantum in it, just to make it economically viable. And so any claim that, you know, has that sort of aspect to start with would be a suitable candidate. The thing with class actors is they usually are claims which have large quantums. So they're usually attractive candidates for funding just for that very reason. But if you just had a simple breach of contract and you had a large quantum, um, that would be a suitable claim to bring. And probably a lot easier, like simpler to bring.
0: And so then, you know, take us through your position, Hugh. When you're kind of looking at a, at a case, be it one which has been referred to you by a law firm or one which you've kind of originated, what are the typical kind of criteria that you use to assess whether this is something that should be put forward to invest in? It's, you've got to think of it almost
1: like when I was at a law firm, a matter would come in, you'd always be straight into like the legal aspects, <laughs> looking at the nitty gritty, whereas it's almost the clip opposite of litigation funding. You just sort of want to look at things, the big, the big ticket items at the very start, because they're things that can just make a case not suitable immediately. As I said, the quantum needs to be very large for the reasons I've already said, jurisdiction. So if it's a claim in a what we say an exotic jurisdiction, we might cut it immediately. Let's say if you're bring trying to bring a claim in Venezuela or something, a, a jurisdiction where it's not comfortable with, we would cut it. Um, the claimant or we look at the claimant as well so you know will this claimant will we run this litigation for five years get the judgment and then this claimant all of a sudden go insolvent, and, it and it'll all be a waste of money so we look at like whether this this company or defendant is going to be or i say claimant, so look at the defendant we look at the defendant to make sure they um will continue being a going concern throughout the litigation so it's like those big ticket items we'll sort of look at and then you sort of funnel it down and almost like the last thing we start looking at the legal aspects of the claim
0: so almost kind of yeah having another side to to the case as opposed to private practice where you're looking more at you know the legal merits or kind of the the specific kind of jurisprudence it seems here you're also looking at the economic reality of the of the claim itself
1: yeah precise because all they need to be ticked off and then you'll get to the actual legal merits and is it a good claim and so as i said and and those big ticket odds you can dust off very quickly you know but then once you're into the actual legal side that's when it can take a lot of time and you know thought to get to the right answer
0: and so which jurisdictions would you say are high growth areas for litigation funding
1: so we operate in a variety of different jurisdictions our main jurisdictions are the us england or the uk um and australia but we also operate in Japan. We're looking at South Africa. But in terms of high growth, I would say that the UK is probably the most high growth at the moment. Um, Australia is an established jurisdiction. And then there's other ones such as Japan, as I said, South Africa, but they're not as much a developed. They're, they're very much developing markets. There's also, sorry, I should also say the Netherlands as well as in there.
0: And so when you kind of operate, say, when you're reviewing a, a claim for kind of um, a class action in the Netherlands or kind of in Australia or the US, I'm guessing then you also have to look at, you know, the civil pro- uh, the civil procedure rules in those other jurisdictions. So it's almost kind of, again, going to that generalist aspect that you were talking about before. Yeah,
1: that's right. So I, I'm Australian, of course I've learned, I've worked in the UK, so I'm, I'm like reasonably familiar with both of those. And a lot of our... Um, investment offices sort of work pretty well across those two jurisdictions but then the u.s we have basically u.s lawyers there who are specialized in the u.s um, but when you're dealing with the more exotic jurisdictions let's say south africa japan or something you really are you know you're a generalist but you have to be guided by the legal teams as well you know you have to rely on the experts you're using over there and hope that they're you know very
0: good and so looking to the future do you think that litigation funding is here to stay and and will become kind of almost a a universal concept
1: yeah i think i definitely think it will stay in the uk you know in australia where it's where it's big now it seems to be it will definitely stay you know in the uk this has opened up a huge amount of you know access to justice with with the competition appeal tribunal there are so many claims now against companies being anti-competitive and like for conduct, which is, you know, these cartels when like the European Commission will find that these companies entered into a cartel and obviously that's raised the prices of certain goods. But in the UK, there just wasn't a mechanism to allow these claims to be brought, but the competition appeal allowing collective actions to be brought and litigation funders to back these actions that allowed consumers to basically seek redress through these through, through the competition appeal tribunal for that really egregious conduct of those, you know, in, in that one example, those cartelists.
0: And so what was it, how would you describe kind of your experience transitioning from private practice to kind of litigation funding? You know, were, were there any kind of regrets or any trepidations before making the switch? What's been the kind of biggest? I mean, we talked about the, the steep learning curve in terms of uh, the workplace, but, you know, take us through that kind of transition.
1: Yeah, I think there's always going to be a bit of trepidation going. I always wanted to go to litigation funding, so it wasn't like I "Oh, this is a huge jump." It still was trepidation. I guess you feel like as a lawyer, you upskill yourself with all these skills being a lawyer, and then you have these, all these tools, and then you're going to go do something. And you just like you're just wasting all that developed knowledge and stuff. But that's why I always felt like litigation funding. I guess in-house counsel would people feel the same. You know, you're sort of like a bridge between business and law because I'm still using those tools. You know that knowledge I developed over the seven years of pri- five years of private practice, but um, you know I'm just using them in a different aspect. It's not like I've just completely left them at the door and gone done something else. But yeah, there I, I was trepidation, there was nerves, but I was really I I, I really enjoyed the move. I've loved the job.
0: And so you know, kind of for future generations, say people straight out of law school that are interested in, into getting this area. Would you recommend kind of almost following a similar path uh, that you did kind of going into private practice? Because it sounds from litigation funding, having disputes experience and, and litigation experience is almost essential to then kind of work in the, fi- the funding space. Um, I think I would not say just dispute work. So we actually have
1: front end lawyers as well who we, As we've developed as a business, obviously, we just used to have dispute lawyers, but we also have, we're hiring now front-end lawyers because we're just dealing with so many contracts and stuff with all our cases. It's handy to have some of that front-end experience. And litigation funding is so new that these businesses are sort of evolving. And historically, it would have been you work to about maybe senior associate level or above at a good law firm, good litigation practice. And then you would have come across the legal action funding. But as these businesses have grown, I think there's going to be ways for people to come in basically as juniors and work their way up. So at our business, we have people called investment associates and they're like sort of the more junior people. Some of them are studying law and stuff. And they're almost like feeling a paralegal role. But the way I see it is these people will probably develop up into like what I am, an investment associate. So it's almost like being a trainee lawyer. So I think like that traditional path is going to be a bit different in the future as these businesses evolve. There's going to be... Um, entry levels for more junior people to come in and work their way up from the ground up.
0: Fantastic. And what would you say is kind of the biggest takeaway our listeners should take away from today's episode?
1: Um, Do you mean in the context of like my career path generally or sort of in the litigation funding sort of um, aspect? Both. Both both all right all right um i mean if, you, I if guess, you can't
0: if you can't isolate it to one then we just say one for each you know one from kind of your all right, career all right. trajectory. so i, I guess on so my
1: one is my, my uh, legal path was definitely not straight straightforward my you know when i was going through university um it was like you go do your law degree you work at a good law firm work your way up to partner that just sort of seemed to be the route everyone would take and you know that's what I thought as well. And it was almost like the Hunger Games when you're trying to go for these like clerkship roles. You know, I'm not joking. You'd have a thousand people applying for a firm which has five roles. And so it's just really hard to get into. But so I didn't take a real traditional path in law, but what I always did was I was always looking for opportunities and stuff. And I think that turned out to be a really good thing for me because I think I would have, I don't know if I would have done that well, just going into a very big law firm at a very junior level and just being thrown into the trenches of doing disclosure for two years or something. I think that would have probably broken me. Whereas the path I took, I, I sort of didn't have to do that to the same degree. And I sort of ended up at the same level as people who would have taken that path. I think it's almost like a, a a less stressful, not less stressful, but a more interesting way to get there. So I think if I was going to give advice to like junior lawyers and stuff or people at law school, it's just, you know, keep your eyes open for opportunities. And even if an opportunity comes up that you don't think it's going to be, you know, you're not that happy with, just take it and you never know where that's going to lead you. Um, and then on litigation funding, you know, I think I just, my, my, my advice would just be, look, if you want to get involved in it, it's a really exciting area. It's a new area. It's dynamic. I find it very... You know exciting to work or interesting but also rewarding because of the matters we work on where i feel like we're funding you know litigation that's generally going to make a difference so you know if this sounds interesting um i would say as i said hope there's going to be more entry-level roles for people get into but if not if you're working in litigation go work in some a litigation firm and hope you can make the transition across
0: and in terms of the the career path kind of what made you want to move from kind of australia to the uk um
1: i think this is just the the, the cliche australian and so we live in a very isolated like everyone like, oh, australia is really nice and everything it is a really nice place to live but it's very isolated you know when i look at people in the uk oh i'm just going to go to paris for the weekend I'm just going go <laughs> to go away for the weekend and i still like have to shake my head because i'm like oh, i'm still in that like australian mindset of being like god and in an hour i'm still like a long way away from anywhere. So I think it was sort of like a bit of an adventure. I wanted to come to the UK for a bit of an adventure, sort of, you know, live in the UK, explore Europe and everything. But also, you know, um, like speaking frankly, lawyers get paid a lot less in Australia than they do in the UK or at least in the London legal market. And so there was the added benefit of being able to come to the UK and I guess uh, be remunerated better.
0: And in terms of kind of the legal... The, the yeah the legal structure the legal framework is it that different or is it pretty much kind of similar no it's it's very similar they, like
1: there's cases that i refer to in australia that are
0: british cases We <laughs> basically,
1: basically australia just adopted the uh the british legal system so it, it was very similar there are some aspects that are different and that uh, can be tricky like the way we do plead like the, obviously you have to, the civil procedure and stuff's different but it's similar enough that you can get your head around uh, and pleadings it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Actually, I thought it was going to be a lot harder, sort of transitioning between the jurisdictions. But it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And the, uh, I, I should say, I should say as well that um, now I think there's an arrangement whereby it was it was a lot easier for Australian lawyers to come to the UK. But I think with this trade deal that's been brought in with Australia, it's going to be a lot easier for UK lawyers to go to Australia now. So <laughs> hopefully, we'll see a lot more UK lawyers down under.
0: I mean, I mean, definitely for the Christmas period, I could, I could reuse some sun. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, well, Hugh, we've talked litigation funding. We've talked kind of, you know, international uh, law transitions. Here on the podcast, we always like to end on a lighthearted note. And I was wondering, you know, with all this litigation and kind of class action, do you have a favorite dramatized legal character on TV or movie uh, and why? Yeah, I do, but
1: it's not because I want to be this person. I need to <laughs> preface that at the very start. It's this, uh, and it's Australian show, but it was on Netflix over here. I don't know if it's still on Netflix. It's, called, it's from a show called Rake. It's Cleaver Green. He's a protagonist in, in the show, um, and he's a bit of a rogue character, but I find him absolutely hilarious. And also like when I did like a bit of criminal law work at the start of my career, I think it like sums up the sort of dynamic between the barrister and a criminal law solicitor quite well. But if anyone wants to watch a really funny show, watch out Rake.
0: Fantastic. I'll be sure to add up to my list. So Q, if any any of uh, the listeners have any questions and want to follow up, can they? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the easiest way would be just to message me on maybe LinkedIn or something. Uh, but
0: happy to answer any questions. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Hugh. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: No worries. Thanks, Max. Well, that's
0: the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about litigation funding and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Hugh. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Enjoying our exquisite brew? Have an act for social media marketing or podcast editing, and are an avid tea drinker? Come work with us on Legal Tea. Send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk or DM us on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk. Mm-hmm. Till next time.